Welcome to the Springforth Podcast, a ministry of the First Congregational Church of McGregor, Iowa. This recording was made on August 8, 2021, the 11th Sunday of Pentecost. Good morning. First of all, I want to thank all of you who are who helped to support and guide and provide food and comfort to the Haman family as we had the service for Robert Haman on Friday. I think everything went very smoothly. Thank Marilyn for providing music for that, Linda Luber for, for seeing Mary working at Backwoods to for the meal and Myron there as well and all of you, and Steve for ushering at the service itself in particular. I think that was a a great moment of hospitality for us. And I find that in times, at least, and maybe this has been my perception this year, but with the funerals and the services, the special services that we've had this year, it really seems that there's an extra touch of hospitality that we have put on there at a, at, a, at a level that I have not seen, and I know that the community is very grateful for that, just to be able to have a community that is understanding, sensitive, and doesn't make an already difficult situation worse, but actually helps to sort of lighten the burden that they are under, the burden of grief. Also in our announcements and for, for prayers, um, Pastor Gary Hatcher's granddaughter is having surgery this morning. Her name is Casey Grace Hatcher. She is the daughter of Matt and Lindsay, his son and daughter-in-law. And it's quite unexpected, but he put a a post up this morning, which Mary saw. So let's, when we get to prayer times, I will lift up Casey Hatcher and for a successful operation this morning. So we had counsel last week And in our conversation, we started to think about how it is that we can translate our faith into action. And one of the things that came up at our church was that we have members in our community who could probably use extra help with things around the house. And this is not saying that anyone's sort of aging out of ability, although sometimes it's safe to say we might be aging out of ability if indeed that is happening, right? It's, we need to call it as we see it, but some of us can still be young and not be able to do things because we just lack the skill or the right tools. So here's the idea that we came up with at council, and council members, you can affirm or deny if you want to, uh, how accurately I get this. The hope is, is that those of you who have some items, some tasks around your house, which is either unsafe for you to do, right now, or you don't have the right tool set, or you really shouldn't be up on ladders or things like that, put a list together. What we want is for you to put a list of some, some things, some tasks around your house that could be done, and bring that list to church, because we have people who once 
to do, who wants to accomplish that task for you. And I thought this was a wonderful idea because I realized that sometimes we have this, this stigma and we don't want to ask for help. And then we also don't want to get grifted by you know, some, some, some person for hire who will gladly take your money and maybe do a substandard job. Why not bring these concerns, first of all, to your church family? Because I guarantee you, we've got some, we've got some, some, some real uh, task warriors in the congregation who have a suite of tools that would rival any contractor. And they've got time on their hands as well. And they're well-priced. That's, I mean, if, if nothing else, call them because they are decently and well-priced. They're affordable. But I'm serious about this. I'm serious about this. If you've got items in your basement and you don't want to have to lift the boxes and sort, if you've got windows that on the second story of your house need to be cleaned, bring, just, just put down your dream list. Just put down your dream list, write it down, be flamboyant, bring it to church. We'll send the hat round and we will see who we can get to address these concerns. Might not be the same person for all the tasks, but I guarantee you, what our desire is, is to be a church that not only thinks of ways to help, but actually completes the help, completes the transaction. Because you know, we can say, oh, we want to help people. But then the call for help never comes, or the call help comes and we go, well, I don't want to do that. <laughs> so, this, this, so this time we're, we're going to try to make it something that, that we want to do, can do, and will do. So make your lists. We're gonna have, we'll have swapsies on, on the coming Sundays, and we'll just keep that going for as long as we can until either A, everyone is completely exhausted and they can't do one more chore, or we've gotten all the work done. No, oh, no, I, I say dream big. Dream big, we'll pick the best, we'll pick the best five out of 12. <laughs> yes. Oh. Okay. See, this is what I'm talking about here. The man's already offering. He's like, I got a suite of tools and skill if you want me behind those tools. If not, just for a small rental fee, you can <laughs> for a generous donation to the Anderson Fund, you too can, <laughs> you too can borrow these tools. All right, um, that's probably about the heart of it. It's all gonna, the worship's all going to go downhill from there, but that was, that was my big pitch. How did I do, Steve? Did I get it in there? Fantastic. Are there any other announcements that any of you would like to lift up? Mary, do you have anything about the... We're taking the school supplies over tomorrow and anything for food shelf that we got in the back there we'll take for tomorrow. Okay. And, Bonnie, was your gift unique to me or is there... Okay, never mind. Y'all didn't hear that. <laughs> nothing to see here. <laughs> if nothing else, then Marilyn, the floor is yours.
God be with you. Let us pray. Grant to us, Lord, we pray, the spirit to think and do always those things that are right, that we who cannot exist without you may by you be enabled to live according to your will through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Please rise as you are able for our opening hymn number two. response of reading is Psalm 130, found in our bulletin. Out of the depths I have called to you, O Lord, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears consider the well of the voice of my supplication. For there is forgiveness with you, therefore you shall be feared. 
My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. With him there is plenteous redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all their sins.
I always get to follow these <laughs> wonderful singers, but we'll do our best. Okay. The Old Testament reading is 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 5 through 9, 15, 31, and 33. The king gave orders to Joab and Asheba and Idai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all of the commanders concerning Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. The men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the slaughter there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest claimed more victims that day than the sword. Absalom, <coughs> excuse me. Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. His head caught fast in the oak, and he was left hanging between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And ten young men, Joab's armor-bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good tidings for my lord, the king, for the lord has vindicated you this day, delivering you from the power of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is all well with the young man Absalom? The Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to do you harm be like that young man. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he, as he went, he said, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would that I had died instead of you. O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. The epistle reading is from Ephesians chapter 4, 25, verse 25 through 5, 2. So then, putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up stealing. Rather, let them labor and work honestly with their own hands, so as to have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up, as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slaughter, together with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God and beloved children, and live in love as God, Christ lo as God as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Please rise for the gospel. The gospel comes to us from John chapter 6, verse 35, 41 through 51. Jesus still dealing with the crowd that has pursued him because they ate their fill of the bread and he healed them of their diseases and cured the sick among them. They are eager to know more of how they can have this bread of life. This is his response to them. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Then the Jews began to complain amongst themselves and about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, is this not Jesus, 
the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how can he now say, I come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not complain among yourselves. No one can come down unless drawn by the father who sent me, and I will raise up that person on the last day. As it is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes from me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. For this is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven, whoever eats of this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his holy word. You may be seated. Let us pray. Beloved and most merciful God, giving you thanks for this day that we have to share with you and with one another. And it is our joy to be able to be in this space and to receive once again testimony to your promises. Promises which not only do we hear in the scriptures, but we see played out in our life in various acts of love and service. So not only are we here to receive, but we are also here to give. To give of our testimony that you indeed are at work in the world and we stand as witnesses to that work and to that vitality. Help us to be consistent as we move forward, hearing and responding, sharing and inviting, trying to stay connected to the reality of the promise, even when it is not always apparent in our immediate circumstances. But today, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be an offering to you. May you bless, keep, and guide us now and always in Jesus' name. So this is the last passion or the last portion that we have of David. It's all, they kind of raced ahead. And we had some really good events in David's life. Me pointing out what I would consider some of his high points in his life and his low points and dealing with that. And when David had become aware of his sin of killing Uriah the Hittite and taking his wife, his prophet Nathan came to him and says, the sword will never be removed from your household, and I will do this publicly. God will do this publicly to remind David that although God still loves David, he, David's sin was such that it would be borne out before the kingdom. Now, some of that hardship that comes is with David's children. David had a son called Amnon, which we do not hear about today. But Amnon took and raped his half-sister, Tamar. And as a result of it, his brother Absalom was most upset with that and wanted David to punish him. He's like, you need to punish him. This is this horrible, wicked thing to my sister. This is not right. And David was so lenient with Amnon, and it just, he just didn't act. He didn't act. I think David was still paralyzed by his own grievous sins and misdeeds that now that his, it was playing out in the next generation, 
he just he was paralyzed. Like he didn't even know how to how to parent. He didn't know how to how to how to guide and to shepherd. He pretty much was just paralyzed with how how to deal with his his family as they're unraveling. But Absalom had an idea. He's like, I know how I know how I'm going to deal with this. So he decided. Absalom decided. This is in chapters that preceded the passage we have today, but you have to have context. So in, Absalom decided to have a, a feast, and he wanted to invite all, the, all the, the king's sons, all the princes of the kingdom, but especially he wanted Amnon there. He had invited his father, and his father's like, no, it's, I'm, I'm old, I, I, can't, I can't do this, I can't make this, this engagement. So Absalom, pretty much knowing that answer, says, well, then let my brother come in your stead. Let him come and be your stand-in. And David's like, that, sound, that sounds good. Sounds good. Amnon can go. Well, when Amnon got to the dinner, Absalom had already told his own imperial guard that when Amnon comes and enters into this space, you will run him through and kill him. And he had been planning this for some time. He was like, I got I to take him out. I have to seek retribution for what he did to my sister. Amnon arrives, Absalom's men lay claim to him, run him through, kill him. And word gets back to David by way of a servant and says, all, you know, all of the, the king's princes have been laid waste. Absalom has killed all the, the sons of, of David. So David's thinking that he lost all of his sons. But when word comes back through a more reliable source, they said, well, no, it's not your princes live, but Amnon has been slain by Absalom. Absalom had a long-standing grudge against him because of that thing that happened with Tamar, and he is no more. And David is beside himself with the death that one of his sons rose up against the other and killed him. And you can see bit by bit that the quality of David's life is starting to sort of ebb he has lost so much from his own poor decisions, and now it's being played out in the next generation. Well, as a result of that, Amnon starts to harden his heart. I mean, excuse me, Amnon's dead. Absalom hardens his heart against his father. That David is frail and weak, and he wants the kingdom for himself. So in the ensuing chapters between chapter 13 up to here, chapter 18, we have Absalom, who is now planning his own coup. He wants to dispatch his father, kill his father in a weakened state, take the kingdom for himself, and proclaim himself king. So in chapter 17, there is a battle that is ensuing right now between David's forces and Absalom's forces. And even, even as Absalom is plotting to take what belongs to his father, the kingdom, and to take it by force, David is still pleading with his generals, do deal gently, deal gently with, with him, because he's my son. He's my son. He's made some poor decisions. He's, he's, he's brash. He's being bullheaded, but, but deal gently with him for the sake of my family. So Joab, David's commander, is in pursuit of Absalom. Absalom's on his mule and he's riding, he's trying to make a getaway, but he goes underneath the tree and the, his hair is long and it's flying and he gets caught up with his hair and he's suspended from the branch. 
horse keeps riding. Horse is gone. Horse is like, hey, this is pretty light here because, because the mount is now hanging up in the tree at a very disadvantage. David's men surround him. And even though Joab was given the commandment to deal gently with Absalom, he sees him as an insurgent. He sees him as a problem in the kingdom. He sees him as somebody who will not change his ways, who will not become aware of himself, who will not fall down and call for his father's mercy. I was wrong. I didn't mean to do this thing. Please have mercy and forgive me, Father. He sees him as an enemy, so he runs him through. Kills him dead right there in the tree. David, meanwhile, is back at the kingdom waiting for any word of what has become of his son. Has he been, has he been captured alive? Is he on his way back? Is he, is he injured? Is all well with the young man, Absalom? And a, a soldier comes through, a, a, neighboring, a neighboring Cushite comes back, and, and David sees this messenger, and he says, is, is it well with the young man, Absalom? And the Cushite, not knowing what David's expectations were, says, may it be, may what happened to that young man be to all the enemies of his majesty. Basically, like anyone who rises up against you should get what he got and worse. David knows now that things are not well with Absalom. He, he, he knows that he's not going to be coming home. He knows now that he has another son who has, who has perished. And this is kind of like the end for David. That he realizes that for his own quest and lust for power, he didn't pay attention around the house. He didn't pay attention to, to the family matters. He was so consumed with what he wanted at the time and the moment that things got away from him and he wasn't as present with his kids and his family like he should have been. And... You get this. You get this turmoil. So he goes and he tucks himself away because he's in mourning. And all he can do is console himself for his grief. Probably wondering, where did I go wrong? What, what happened? But he knows. David knows. He, he knows what went wrong is that he wanted what he wanted when he wanted it. And as a result of that, everything else was not even a consideration. And this is a hard and difficult passage for us to link with our, with our own life. But maybe it's not that difficult because basically what we're talking about is family conflict. We're talking about conflict within the family. We're talking about a father who is very much estranged from his sons. Sons so angry with their father, angry enough to kill him, angry enough to want what he wants, but not to ask for it, not to wait for it to come to them the, the appropriate, through the appropriate channels, but they want to usurp their father. They want to destroy their father. What happens when we get to that level of disgust with members of our own household, members of the communities that we are involved in, that we simply wish them away? We simply wish their existence to cease so we don't have to deal with them. We always think that somehow if we could just, if we could just have the problem individual removed from us, that, everything, that, that would make everything right. That would make everything right. And I assure you, it never works that way. It never works that way. And I've said this before in the context of when we come to Mark 
the completion of someone's life, that if there were any unresolved issues with the people who come to that service and the person who is deceased, that will continue to, to fester. It will continue to be an ongoing individual. The death of that individual does not remove you from the conflict they gave you in life or the conflict that you had with them in life. You've got to work on resolving these things while you have time. Otherwise, make sure that your health insurance covers your therapy. Now, I mean that seriously. Because if we don't talk about these things, if we do not address these concerns, they will continue to forever dog us. This is, what, this is where David's at. Even though David had his prophet Nathan, even though David had a, a conduit to God that he could pour out, his, poor, his collective poor decisions alienated him from his family. And as a result of it, they became enemies within the same household. Now, I don't know the context of what you have to bear day to day. Maybe all's well in your world. I mean, maybe it really is. Maybe everything is good. You end every conversation with I love you and, and you mean it. You're not just saying that to get him off the line, but you actually, you actually mean it. And you're like, you know, this is good. I, li I like this peace. I like this harmony. Whatever you're doing that's working, wash, rinse, repeat. <laughs> just, keep, just keep on at that. But I'm speaking to those of you who are in conflict, right? I'm speaking to those of you who have some impediment, some misunderstanding, some debilitating emotional situation between you and someone who is very close to you. And you are asking yourself, how can I get through to this person? How can I reach them? How can I let them know that I am not their adversary? That I don't want to perceive them as, as my adversary? Why is it that every time we get together, the first few words that we say are immediately confrontational? We have people like that in our life. We are like that to other people, where our very existence is confrontational. They are in our families. They are our co-workers. They are our long-standing neighbors. Somehow we feel like, what is this, some, 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 some terrible joke, God? You know I want to be happy. You know I want to be pleasant, yet you season my life with these individuals. I don't understand them. They won't go away. They're saying, why don't you go away? Say, because I live here. They say, well, I live here. <laughs> but we can't seem to agree on anything. What advice do you give to others when they come to you and they go, I don't understand my kids. I don't understand my spouse. I don't, I don't understand my brother or my sister. I, don't, I, don't, I just, they're troublesome. What advice do you give those individuals? Do you draw upon your own experience? Do you draw upon that, that difficult member of your family? That relative that you have to see a few times a year and you, you, you do all that you can to brace yourself for the encounter? Or do you just skip the gathering entirely? Because they're going to be there. 
I mean, I'm sorry, David has actually very little to teach us in this context because he made such a hash of his family. What we realize is that the reason why David became estranged from his sons is because David was too caught up in, his, in, in, in what it means to be David. And as a result of pursuing what he wanted and when he wanted it, he didn't have time to check in with those that he should have been minding, those he should have been paying some attention to. So maybe, really, what we have to learn from David is that the danger and the perils of our own self-involvement is what's costing us our healthy relationships. When we are unwilling to come down on what we suppose is our particular given truth, when we are unwilling to, to, to listen because we'd rather speak, we'd rather defend our platform, we'd rather have the last and final word, at the risk and detriment of what somebody else might offer us, then we realize that we place the relationships in peril because we don't create the two-way street. It's, it's always one way, and it's our way. I stopped going to clergy gatherings because I got tired of hearing ministers complain about their congregations. They're horrible, these gatherings. And I stopped going about 17 years ago. <laughs> so it's not like I've been, because I, I know the conversations are all the same. And I realize that you people aren't interested in wanting to study the Bible, as you, as you suppose you are. You just want to tell me about the little scabs on your council. You want to talk about the, the, the fights that you have with your music director, or how your, your, your youth uh, program isn't as vital enough, because you're all a bunch of boneheads who are in your, your uh, Sunday school program. No, I realized that but what was happening was that these ministers did not actually want to be on the same page with their parishioners. They didn't want to hear their parishioners. They wanted their parishioners to march to their tune. And then when the parishioners expressed their own open opinion, how dare they? How dare they? Or they went to pull rank and say, well, you know, Pastor, you were at this church before you arrived. I don't want to live from confrontation to confrontation, and I don't think that you want to live that way either. So I'm thinking about if we could have if we could do some revisionist history on David, I guarantee you he probably wouldn't have taken Bathsheba. He wouldn't have killed her husband. He would have been where he should have been, right? The time when kings go to battle. He's like, let me go to battle. Let me do what kings are supposed to do instead of sit around the palace and think about what I can mess up. I think he would have paid greater attention to his kids and what's going on there. And I think that when he found his kids in an infraction, he wouldn't have gone easy on them. He would have held them accountable in the same way that he was held accountable. Do we draw near to the scriptures because we think that somehow it's going to magically improve our life? Because if we don't apply it, nothing happens. Right? You can come into contact with the scripture, you can read the scripture, you can study the scripture, but if we do not try to dare to live the scripture, it is lost on us. So in the context of a Christian community, a community of faith that we are trying to be, we have to realize that there will be tensions. There will be tensions within our own household. There will be tensions within the household of faith. There will be tensions within the community. The question is, is are we going to be the kind of individuals who are going to invoke the word of God in that place, or are we going to be the insurgent 
who will come to make an already tense situation more difficult to bear. Compotsters. And I don't know if there's really a role in the world for people who agitate things. When I was younger, I used to think that that was kind of neat, you know, to be the person to ask the contrary question, just to sort of invert and upset the direction of the class lecture. You know students like that, Dale. But now I realize, is there really any future in being an agitator? Especially if you're just doing it for malicious sport. Is it our intention when we gather as a community to look for what's wrong, to look for what's not as right, uh, to look for something that could be improved and never offer any suggestions on how that improvement could take place? When I think about the context of First Congregational and who we are and who we are trying to be, I feel that for the mission call of being a people who can make Christ known in the community, we have to understand that every day we wake up and we are offered a choice. We can go in the world and we can bring enthusiasm and compliments, we can bring encouragement, we can assist, we can maintain, we can uplift and hold a space. Or we can be agitators. Every day when we wake up, we have to make that decision. We could head out of the house with the express intention of doing right by others and someone can push a button. So I think we have to know where our pressure points are, what's going to, what's going to bait us, what's going to anger us. Because if we lose our witness, that's what people remember. That's what they remember. They remember when we lose our composure. They remember the insincere things that we say. You can have 50 wonderful gestures of hospitality. One bad moment will ruin it all. They'll forget all that stuff. They'll forget that time you took them to a doctor's appointment, when you brought over that baked tree, when you were there with them, when their brother died. They can forget all that stuff. You call them out, they'll be like, yep, I always knew you were an idiot. And that's what they'll remember. Now, last week, I touched off on the fact that we as a congregation don't really know one another's stories. And that seemed to really resonate with some of you. Because you're like, yes, I want to be part of a community where I know the people that I'm worshiping with. And just more than just their name, more than just maybe where they live, but really know the context of what they are dealing with and what they are struggling with. So we have to continue to work actively to create the kind of community where it is a safe space. I know, safe space. That's such, that whole term has been ruined. Let's put, let's put, I'm trying to come up with a different adjective, and I'm, I'm stymied now. I'm stymied by the limits of language, and the language is vast and, and varied. But to create a kind of environment whereby we can be more transparent than not. Nothing worse than to have to come to church and be exceedingly guarded. To have to come to church and not be able to talk about maybe some of the harrowing events that you've had, some of the ill thoughts that you've had, some of the bouts of anger that you have struggled with or depression. Church should be the kind of place where we can walk in that door, run over by the world, sit down with someone and say, you wanna hear the kind of week I'm having? Let's brew up some coffee because we're gonna be here a while. 
That's good church. That's good church. That's excellent church. That's, that's better than anything I could ever give you. If we, could, if we could just have an opportunity where we just brew up some coffee, everyone takes a pew, and we just swap stories and, and chore lists. I'm serious about that. And we hear one another. And we hold a space for one another, and possibly we come to understand one another. And the work that we have to do to alleviate these kinds of intense moments, relational moments, where somebody says something and somebody responds to it in a defensive posture, we have to work so hard because now we're dealing with, we're dealing with the airwaves. We're dealing with, with uh, this, this sort of digital memory that doesn't go away. We're dealing with bulletin boards that seemingly are beyond our control with uh, artificial intelligence uh, continuing to feed us things that the computer says, will you like this? So we have so many forces that are pulling at, at our emotional composure every day that it's hard for us to know how to interact when we're with one another in three dimensions. What do we say? What don't we say? We're trying to read people. We're trying to read their eyes. If they're not masked, we're trying to read you know, their facial, facial features. And what we really want is to live and to be at peace with one another. And I think that peace comes through understanding. Peace comes from listening, from hearing. Peace comes from nodding more often than shaking one's heads. Peace, peace comes from asking the question of, well, that's not been my experience, but let me hear more. Let me hear more about that because I... I've just never considered it the way you have. Peace comes from not having to be right. Why do we always have to be right? Why is it so insistent for us to be able to like ride or die on our principles to the extent of good relationships? It's like, well, I was going to come by and clean your windows, but, you know, after that last encounter, clean in yourself. <laughs> good luck with that. Take up your list, rip it up, throw it in your face. I don't want to be your friend anymore. So we have a tremendous responsibility as the people of God to lift these words off the page and into the community. Constant self-monitoring, constantly making sure that we don't allow our conversations to end on the bad word. I mean, a lot of this is where the passage from Ephesians is taking us. Do not let your sun go down on your anger. Do not let the day end in conflict. Right? But how do we begin? I guess my only simple, basic advice is we have to listen. So I thank you for listening to me. And I hope that you will pay that courtesy to someone else in your future and in your life who desperately needs to be heard. Amen. Let us join together in our responsive hymn, number 413.
let us remember not only Casey Hatcher in our prayers, but all those who are in our hearts and minds this time, who are in fragile health, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Let us lift them all up in prayer. Let us pray. Merciful God, we thank you for the day so that you give us opportunities for us to leave your imprint, not our own, on our communities. We come before you and ask your prayers be upon those who are sick and suffering. Be with Pastor Hatcher's granddaughter, Casey, as she is in the surgical theater at this moment. May you guide her healthcare team and may they address her concerns to the best of their skill and ability. May she have a smooth recovery. We know that her family is well acquainted with you, but a little extra prayer cover has never hurt. We also ask that you would be mindful of those in our own community in and around us who are continuing to heal, who are anticipating upcoming procedures, who have just felt exhausted, not only to marginalized health, but sometimes just emotional circumstances that assault us in life. For those both named and unnamed, we offer them to you with the express concern that you will tend to their needs through the community of faith. We do not live in a vacuum, but we realize that the quality of life that we desire and hope for, it's the work of the people. It is our task to work together to build that kingdom and that space and the community that we want to live in. So help us to do our part, to be mindful of our conduct, to have our, to have our truths, but to be able to speak them in love. I think that's the operative term, is not to sequester one's opinions, but to be able to convey them in a way that is not hostile, in a way that still acknowledges and affirms the dignity of the person we're in conversation with. It's a skill like any other skill, but when it's employed, it is incredible because it leaves the door open. It leaves the channels open. It means, hey, we can see one another again in the future. We don't have to write each other off the Christmas lists or walk across the aisle when we see each other in the, in the supermarket. We don't have to pretend we don't know each other. So it's how things are said. It's how things are said and received that determine our ability to convey your hope and promise in the world. Don't give up on us. We're learning. 
as new challenges unfold, we are learning how to navigate these things. As people get more and more intense about less and less, we are learning how to navigate that. It's crazy landmine of emotional issues out there, and it's just showing our, well, it's showing our rapid rise and our emotional fragility. So if you could just bless us with some emotional intelligence, I, I, I would thank you personally. I, William Gentry, would thank you if you blessed our communities with more emotional intelligence. That's my prayer request. Uh, the congregation has their own, but William Gentry definitely wants to make the list somewhere in there because we cannot continue to operate at the level of crazy <laughs> that we've been at. It's just, uh, it's too much. So be with us, God. Strengthen us. Uh, guide our composure. Help us to be your people. And continue to lay your blessing upon uh, Pam, Haman, and family as they continue to work their way through Bob's death, his life and legacy. Remind them that indeed they are not alone. Holy Spirit dwells with them. Receive our prayers for the sake of he who offered himself for us in Jesus' name. Receive these prayers that have been spoken unto you, God, and allow us once again to just open the channels of communication with you wherever, whenever we feel the need to call upon you for strength, patience, endurance, to pray for guidance, to feel the Spirit moving through us. If nothing else, deliver us from ourselves that we would not continue to exacerbate already tenuous relationships, but demonstrate to us the power of reconciliation and allow us to experiment with different ways of building bridges, to hear you and to respond to you. Bit by bit, individual by individual, moment by moment, allow us to hear one another, to not demonize, to not recriminate, to not dismiss but to hear, encourage, and empower all the same things that you did to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. May your will be our will more often than our will is our will. And remember us as we pray as one. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
good for us to be here. We do not take this space for granted. Because sometimes in here we do find that we have moments where our life is transformed. Be it on the regular Sunday worship, be it at a wedding, funeral, Bible study, wherever it is that transpires in this place, there have been moments of true life transformation. And for that, we count ourselves as blessed. We respond by the giving of our gifts. Such blessings. We join together in our church covenant. We covenant with the Lord and with one another and do bind ourselves in the presence of God to walk together in his holy ways. We will strive to be doers of the word and not hearers only, to be firm in faith, quickened in hope, and constant in charity. And we will consecrate our time, talent, substance, and influence as heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. God, ready us now. We see in the gospel that there was some dissension about Jesus offering his, his flesh as a sacrifice. And we know 
that as we partake of communion, we do feel absolved. We feel uplifted. We feel that our sins have been dissipated and forgotten. So as we prepare to receive this meal, remind us once again of the significance of that, that we do not walk out a broken people. We walk out of this church redeemed in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he sat at a table with his disciples, took bread, blessed it, and says, this is my body, which has been given for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. They shared the cup. This is the cup of the new covenant, my blood shed for the remission of sins. We give you thanks, Lord, for reminding us once again how important we are to you and how essential we are to the fashioning of your mission in the world. Without us, it, it simply cannot take place. And things that are an impediment to that is a burdened conscience. So this act of reminder of our redemption, may it unburden our conscience that we can go forth and share you in a variety of ways, in word and in deed, but to live in accordance with your promise that others too might be enveloped with hope. We join together in our closing hymn, number 446.
May God look upon you with favor, strengthen your walk, and guide you through the many events that will unfold this week. Hopefully, they will be mostly pleasant, but in the midst that you encounter some rather unpleasant experience, remember, you are not alone. May God lift you up, sustain you, and show you the way out. The Lord bless and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord look upon you with favor and grant you peace.